Chapter Ten of the Secret of the Silver Car by Wyndham Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Chapter Ten, The Greater Game. Trent was annoyed next morning to learn from Hensey that he was to accompany Pauline and the Count to the links. The only redeeming thing about the expedition was that he himself could get a few strokes in the demonstration. The Count was in high good spirits and gracious to them all. "'Ah, Alfred!' he cried. "'This is my last game for two weeks. Yes, I shall be too busy playing another and a greater game. And you, too, will be busy. Tell me, you know the roads to Fiume, Zeng, and Agram well?' "'I could set them to music,' Trent said, forgetting that it was Alfred Anthony who was answering his august employer. He waited until the Count drove." He saw that the autocrat broke every rule of the many which go to make a perfect drive, yet sent his ball every inch of two hundred yards. Never had Count Michael done such a thing before. "'Let us see you beat that,' he said dramatically. Trent pressed. He wanted to outdrive the other by fifty yards, and ordinarily would have done so. He took too much earth and sent a rocketing ball skyward, which dropped full fifty yards behind the other. "'That was very tactful of you,' Pauline whispered. "'His Excellency will be in a good temper the whole day.' "'Do you think I'd try to do that?' he asked. "'Why not?' she asked. "'I only know you are of a timid disposition. "'I hate timid men.' "'I can't help being timid,' he said, grinning genially. "'It's my nature.' So gratified was the Count by his unusual showing at the game that he did not notice how close Pauline kept to Alfred Anthony. It was nervous work for Anthony, and he answered the girl abruptly, trying to keep her attention on the game. "'You are two men,' she said presently, when Hensey and his employer were a little ahead of them. For a moment Trent was thoroughly alarmed. What did she know? He had always known that it was a fallacy to assume, because he had seen none on his midnight wanderings, that he had been unobserved. In a vast house such as Castle Ratna, there were nooks and crannies where frightened servants or timid guests might hide from him momentarily, only to denounce him later. "'What do you mean?' he asked, teeing up her ball. He had not answered her immediately. "'That you are two men. There may be three of you, but I have seen two already.' There's a timid, servile creature accepting a coin or a blow, and eating with the servants as among his equals. I hate that man. The other is a creature that every now and then looks out of your eyes like a bird of prey. It is the man who drives the great car over the mountain passes as though it were on a smooth boulevard. It is the man who beat big Peter Sissek to the earth with tight lips and eyes that flashed. That is a man I could love. He could feel her arm brush against his own. There was a caressing tenderness in her voice. "'Tell me, which is the real you?' Anthony Trent looked straight ahead of him. "'If you slice your ball,' he said, "'you'll get into the rough. Golf, like other things, is largely a matter of self-control.' "'I could kill you,' she said, her eyes blazing. "'Think of my wife and children,' he answered, with a grin. "'That is why,' she retorted. The Count is right. One should have only contempt for lackeys. I honour you too much as it is. Fine, Trent observed. Suits me all right. How many quarterings of nobility have you, Mademoiselle Pauline? I at least am an artiste, 
she flung back at him. To be the most graceful skater in the world, and to have earned more in a week than you in a year, is something which puts me as far above you as Count Michael Temesvar. Absolutely, Trent agreed. Take your mashie here and go back slowly, and don't look up for three seconds after hitting the ball. Pauline was certainly a splendidly athletic woman. She held herself magnificently, and was at her best this morning. But merely to be with her bored the pseudo-chauffeur, who had thoughts only for Daphne. Daphne could have given her two strokes a hole and a beating, he reflected. Gloom seized on him as he wondered if ever again he would see her. He was in peril in Castle Retna, even as an honest worker. Peter Sissek had sworn to pay him for the beating. Half of Trent's energies were consumed in going over his car to make sure the bolts and nuts were tight and had not been loosened maliciously. And in his position as an emissary of the Earl of Rosecarrel, he was in danger of the most vivid kind. He was a spy in a house which sheltered a princeling who might yet force Europe into war. If it were discovered he possessed this secret, nothing could save him. It was a sinister, dour pile of stone, this castle Ratna utterly unlike the Cornish castle with its rose-gardens, its fountains, and the charm of country life. He could well believe that in his present dwelling tragedies had been enacted of which no knowledge had filtered through to the larger world. Oddly enough, it was during the day when he was peacefully employed as Alfred Anthony that he was most obsessed by despondency. When the servants were long abed and asleep, and the silences of the early hours hung about the great corridors and halls, Anthony Trent came into his own. His rubber-shot feet were noiseless in the stone passages, and his two pass-keys opened every locked door. He was possessed of all secrets, it seemed to him. Here he was free to wander like a ghost in banquet hall and corridor. None walked so silently as he. Pauline did not talk to him any more that morning, but the Count was affable. "'Ah, Arfred!' he cried. "'Tomorrow your work commences. Yes.' You leave for Fiume at daybreak and meet the Ungarish Croatische boat. This time you will go alone, as you will have a passenger beside you as you return. You will wait at the Hotel de l'Europe. The boat gets to her dock at eleven, and my guests will drive immediately to the motor. Make speed back, for you must go to Agram and back before dinner. That will be going some, Trent commented. For what reason do you suppose I buy a lion-car and a chauffeur, if not to do what my other automobiles and chauffeurs cannot do? Why do you imagine I introduce a Londoner into my servants' hall, a brawling man who assaults good Peter Sissek, if not because he must travel fast and safely? But the Count was not angry. He was in that good humour which comes to all men, who, having been in the habit of taking seven for a last hole, make it in four. Pauline had taken six, and he had not permitted his record to be clouded by allowing Trent, as Pauline suggested, to see what he could do it in. Anthony Trent started on his trip when it was as yet hardly light. He was singularly carefree. The repulsive Sissek was not at his side, and he was free to wander about the seaport town, locate the cable offices, and make certain arrangements that might contribute to future safety. That he was invariably able to make such good time was due mainly to the absence of traffic along the Maria Luisa road. Not yet had the old prosperity come back to Europe, and there were more automobiles in Allenhurst, New Jersey, than all Croatia. He was bound to admit that the group of people he took from the Hotel de l'Europe lived up to all the traditions of mysterious fiction. 
there were two men, middle-aged and plainly used to power, and a very pretty, vivacious, dark woman of five-and-thirty, to whom her escorts paid profound attention. The seat beside Trent was occupied by the lady's maid. The black Morocco dressing-case she held inexorably upon her knees was marked with a coronet. The woman was hard-faced, elderly, and uncommunicative. Trent noticed that her mistress was in that deep mourning which European women affect. Trent tried the maid in English, but she made no answer at all. He strained his ears to catch what language was being talked behind him, but the lion was a car of tremendous wheelbase, and the passengers were removed too far from him. Once or twice in the old days, particularly in the case of the Sinn Féin plot, Anthony Trent had found his lack of knowledge of German a handicap. This linguistic failing was now remedied. He had studied the tongue carefully, and as languages were easily acquired by him, had some fair proficiency in it. He was not certain whether it was a trap or a genuine desire to know that made the woman, after whispered talk with the lady in black, say to him suddenly, Wenn wir nur nicht unwerfen, die Strassen sind nicht besonders hierzulande. It was his first impulse to tell her that she would not be upset, and that they would soon get on to the better roads. Then he remembered Alfred Anthony knew but little of any tongue but his own. He smiled at her and shrugged his shoulders. "'Try it in English,' he commanded, smiling. "'No, speak Dutch.' She did not take the trouble to answer. It was, he decided, a trap to find if he understood. Perhaps it was counted in his favour, this ignorance of continental tongues. At Agram he fetched six other people. He found that Sissek and another chauffeur had been busy also. Hansi, always desirous of impressing those beneath him in rank, told Trent he was to be guest tonight at a table which would hold some of the great ones of the country. "'Will Pauline be among those present?' Trent asked. "'Pauline?' Hansi sneered. "'There will be gracious, high-born ladies at the table, and among these our Pauline has no part.' She knows that. "'What time do you dine?' Trent asked. It was now seven o'clock, and Hensie was not in evening dress. "'At half-past eight. There is one among us who likes the late dinners of the English, and his likings must be obeyed even by Count Michael.' "'An Englishman?' Trent queried. "'My friend,' Hensie said impressively, if you could take all the British and all the Americans and sink them in mid-ocean, he would be entirely happy. I do not think you understand world politics, eh? I follow the racing and footer news, Trent confessed. I'm not so much on politics. A set of grafters, if you ask me. Trent spent an hour on his car. He filled the tanks with gasoline and saw that his spare tires were ready and made the little adjustments that only sensitive fingers may perform. As a rule, he drove the car straight into the garage and backed out. Tonight he backed into it. There might be the sudden need to utilize every moment. Hensie's news was good. A dinner of state commencing at half-past eight would be continued long after dark. Of necessity, the Count would be there, and undoubtedly the officer and his royal master would grace the board. Entrance could easily be made through their room and over the courtyard to the Count Michael's apartment there would be time for a thorough search. The kitchens were full of bustling maids assisting the cooks. There was so much confusion that Trent helped himself amply to what food he desired and strolled out to the garage to eat it. More than half was stowed away in his car. 
if he were able to get away that night, as he hoped, it might come in handily for breakfast. His plan was to place the treaty draft in an envelope already addressed and stamped and mail it at Fiume. After that, he would take the car into Italy, if possible, and make for Venice, whence he could come easily to England. The servants saw him take a candle and walk warily to his room. They remembered he had been up before dawn broke. Not one of them had any suspicions that he was aught but what he represented himself to be. At half-past ten, Anthony Trent, looking through the carved oaken musicians' gallery, twenty feet above the floor of the banqueting-hall, beheld a notable company assembled. When he saw that the prince had at his side the vivacious dark lady, he remembered that the weekly pictorial papers had often presented her to their readers. She was the daughter of a royal house lately at war with his country. To her diplomatic skill and love of intrigue was due many checks to allied plans. It was said she ruled her husband absolutely and loved him little. Trent recognized the two men he had brought with him. They were in evening dress, as was Count Michael, and decorated with many orders, of St. Stephen of Hungary among others. The military attaché bristled with medals, and there were others in brilliant uniforms. No other woman was present but the princess. Her jewels made Trent's mouth water. No doubt the maid had carried them at his side for several hours, and would, for all he had to do with it, carry them back. Not for a moment dare he think of taking them. It was obvious that the Count would make no outcry about the loss of the draft if that alone were taken. He would piece things together and understand the riddle of Alfred Anthony. But were the valuables of his guests taken, it might be a police matter. So great was the buzz of conversation that Trent could catch no memorable phrase. Here and there was a name he had heard of, but that was all. He noticed that Hensy was not a guest, despite his boasting. This in itself was awkward, for the secretary might be even now in the big room to which the master criminal was bound. He was relieved presently to observe Hensy hovering on the outskirts of the room, directing the servants, a sort of super-majordomo. It was exactly eleven when he crossed the dark courtyard and opened one of the long French windows of Count Michael's room. It was in darkness. A little water-driven power-plant supplied some of the chief rooms of Castle Ratna with electric light, and he was able, after screening the windows, to flood the room with light. It was an apartment the counterpart in size and decoration of the one occupied by the prince across the courtyard. Almost the first thing Anthony Trent saw was the safe, and as he looked on it he knew his hopes were in vain, and the draft of the treaty could remain there indefinitely for all his skill availed, or all the knowledge of the greatest peatman would aid, had he possessed it. Count Michael Temesvar was not one of those who entrusted precious things to insecure keeping. It was a Chepwood burglar-proof safe of a type Trent had heard of, but never before seen. The double-dialed cannonball safe of the American maker was the nearest approach to this gleaming, mocking thing which faced him. There was no chance that any forcing screw or wedge could damage the bolts. The locks were so protected that drilling was impossible, and no nitroglycerine could be used. The oxyacetylene blowpipe, high explosives, or electric arc were useless here. It was the last word of a safe-making firm which had been in the business for more than a century. Trent did not doubt, as he gazed at it, that there would be developed by the need of it craftsmen who could open even this— but the time was not yet. 
Count Michael Temesvar had been wise in buying the only safe in the world whose patent had been extended by the Privy Council of Great Britain. With his gloved hands, Trent touched the thing lightly. The millionth chance that it might not be locked was against him. He was wasting his time. Quickly, he made a methodical search of the room, but found nothing that interested him. On his own bed, he sat for an hour, wondering what to do. He had been so certain when speaking to Lord Rosecarrel that his professional skill would accomplish what others had failed to do, that this disappointment was bitter indeed. He had wondered why the Count had taken so little caution in permitting a foreigner of the same supposed nationality as Lord Rosecarrel to live in Castle Rodna. It was, plainly, because the Count knew perfectly well that the Chepwood safe preserved his treasures inviolate. Probably no living crook could break into it, even though he had a year in which to work. It was undrillable, unscathed by fire, and could repose at the bottom of the sea without its contents becoming damaged. Trent's first thought of compelling the Count to give up the combination by force promised an unhappy ending. Surrounded by servants and friends, he would assuredly be interrupted before he could be forced to give up his secret. Hence he would never be entrusted with the combination. None would know it but Count Michael. For a moment he wondered if Pauline might be dragged into it to exercise her Delilah arts on her protector. "'There must be some way out of it,' Trent murmured a hundred times as he sat on his bed's edge. Dawn was breaking as he closed his eyes. His expression was calm and untroubled. He had found his solution. End of chapter 10